0: Okay, that was right. We're talking about a letter. A letter that was written by one of Maimonides' students about probably the most essential issues that one can ask about Judaism. Somebody had a question. says to the Rambam, I don't understand all of your basic principles, science, religion. How do those two correspond, science and religion? The issue of... <clears throat> prophecy. What's prophecy all about? The issues of mitzvot, what are that all about? What's the purpose of life? All of these very essential questions were asked in this letter by Hastai Levi. We don't we know too much about him. Just he was a Spadavid who lived in Egypt, Alexandria in Egypt. And he raised all these questions. The Ramadan was ill, had a difficult time about it, could not answer directly, and therefore student answers. So because the students answer, we have to have a little bit of, of a doubt as to whether or not the students answer a hundred percent actually reflects the Rambam's views or not? Okay, so we're going through it to see exactly how the Rambam would formulate this. We have to, when we come to the end of it, see if it's exactly accurate or not. What are the issues that bother a person in those days? So we began, spoke about creation. Creation versus eternity of the world. Or well, again, it's an element of science and religion. These two correspond or conflict? How does religion respond to scientific claims? One of the ironies of that issue, is, as we discussed last night in our class, is that that's not a new issue today, it's a thousand-year-old issue, and has been an ongoing, constant source of conflict. To this very moment, you're going to have children in college who are taking certain courses in science, and they're going to be raising questions about religion. Example, my daughter took a course last year in physical anthropology, whatever that means, and. She had to go to the zoo. So she tells me, Dad, I'm going to zoo I'm going to visit my cousins. Who are you going to visit? The apes. That's her cousins. That's what they teach. Does that not conflict with what Torah teaches about human descent? Where humans came from? And if it is a conflict, how do we resolve it? How do we answer a young searching mind who is taught certain ideas in a college setting that are opposed to Torah? Do we say, Don't go to college, close your mind? close your heart, build a wall around you? Or do we say that Torah can compete in the marketplace of ideas successfully? Obviously, I believe in the latter position. One can compete easily. I'm not afraid of anything that I'll learn. And my basic criteria would be that if that which science is saying, or you're saying, whatever are saying, is true, that it cannot conflict with Torah. It means my prior understanding of Torah was faulty. I have to re-correct. Tikkun, I have to recorrect, correct to mend my previous view of Torah, which conflicted with that which is true. If, for example, to put it on a trivial basis, if you were to teach something, let's say that uh, the earth you discovered is round, and Torah, let's say Torah is flat, my understanding of Torah was that it was, the earth is flat, I have to change my understanding of Torah, because I, I, you've proven the earth is round. If you were to prove with a little more sophisticated example that evolution is true, and I didn't believe that based on Torah. I'm to have to re-correct my understanding of Torah because Torah cannot conflict with that which is true. That's a basic my Maimonadean Rambam position. If you've proven your position, whether it's creation, or in any other area, you've proven it with legitimate proofs, then I have to make sure that my understanding of Torah corresponds to that proven fact. Torah cannot contradict Proven fact whatsoever. Clear point. So this first issue of is one of science and religion, or the creation. So the Rambam or a student says, you know, there are three theories of creation which we discussed. They don't have none of them have proofs, and therefore I can believe in the Torah's view of creation because they didn't prove their position. And he comes down to the notion and says that look, if you have a world that's turning, there has to be a turner. Who's turning the system? Who's making the world revolve? Obviously says there must be that which is causing the whole system to be, to exist. And then he speaks about prophecy. Prophecy is a source of knowledge that's beyond the natural world. Now, would the Rambam say this or not is an interesting question. He's saying over here that philosophy gets you to a certain point in understanding the natural world. Beyond the natural world, the metaphysical world, or the supernatural world, one needs to... To the prophet, to the Navi, to get any kind of information about that realm beyond the physical, the metaphysical. Meta means beyond, above the physical. And once a prophet is proven as t- to being a source of truth, whatever he says is taken at face value as a source of truth. So if I didn't prove creation and you did not prove creation, Navi says creation, then guess what? I'm gonna believe creation, because creation must be true, because the Navi can't say anything false. But then spoke about Mosaic prophecy. What is the nature of Moshe's prophecy? Divine communication. Has it worked? We spoke about this. Is it a created voice? God manipulating the airwaves to create a sound? Or is it mentally telepathic? Mental telepathy. Where? I have a question on that thing. Okay. Because the Navi speaks with the authority of God once he's proven as a prophet. If he said something to that effect. Because God told him? Yes. To him there was yeah. Creation, yeah. Or he deduced that it was creation? No, if he deduced it on a and philosophical level, then he's a philosopher. But, but how how he's a proven Navi? Even a proven Navi could make one would say Ron doesn't say this, let's be clear, but yes, a prophet does speak with the divine authority, with some of his spoken word, but not necessarily with all of it. So, therefore, we'd have to see, are you saying this as a Navi? Are you saying this as a philosopher who speculates? He would say, no, no, this is divine instruction. This is what God said to me. Therefore, it has to be accepted. Because he was already proven to be a true prophet, not a false prophet. So, good it. point. There's this thing that he says it came from... Right. As, yes, if he says that this came. Although, your question is really speculative because we don't have Nabiim making those kinds of statements. Or at least, they made them, they were not recorded. Meaning, good example of this issue. very good point. The Nivi'im often will make a distinction between two kinds of events in the world. There could be an incident, and there could be an event. What's between an event and an incident? Incident is, happened random, I stopped myself, no big deal. An event is something very significant, meaning that it has divine implications. God made this happen for you to have a wake-up call. That's the wake-up call. That's it. That's Hashem. i got a problem. Shall we wait? Say I love you over the phone. Say I love you. Say I love you. Okay. (laughs) Robert made me say that. <laughs> I get in trouble all time for that. It's a big, it's a big boost. What do you mean by that? What do you I'm sorry. We're going to Brooklyn. Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to go. You have to go. Okay, so here we have this example, where let's say, for example, Saddam Hussein becomes the head of a government. You're living in Israel. He's head now of Iraq, and you want to know whether that is incidental to world history or it's a significant event in world history. So you go to the man who understands the breadth of world issues and environments, and those days it was the Navi. And these days it might be Henry Kissinger. In those days the prophet said, if that happens, that's divine. Not incidental, but rather eventful. It's a big important event. The people came in on the 8th century to the Navi Yo'el, three chapters in his book, three, four chapters in his book, and they asked him, we just experienced this horrific plague of locusts. We've never seen such an incredible plague of locusts. We want to know from your perspective, is this incidental or eventful? Tell us! So the Nabi says, no, no, this is not an incident. This is an event. Event means God is trying to communicate a message to you, which is what message? That you must improve your ways. Return. Do Teshuvah. Otherwise it gets worse. What I mentioned last night at Tzadashi Rashi is along the same lines. Meaning, that the people who had been exiled in 598, in what's known as Galut Yehoi They said that was an incident. Yeah, the king came in, the king swept away a couple of people. Uh, 100, 200, people of the origins, nobility, etc. And we're going back from Babel to Judea. What's the problem? And he says, you don't get it. You Yahazkel says to the people, you don't get it. You are here not as a result of an incident. This was an eventful event. And therefore, take note, you must change your words. If you don't change your words, you're going to be even longer. No, 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 you don't get it. We have known ways to change. We are fine. We are observant. We are righteous. You don't get it, Navi. We just happened to be caught up in a sweep of Nebuchadnezzar's armies. And we're going back as soon as things calm down. them, You don't get it. That was an event that took place as a cause and effect. The cause was your behavior. The effect was your galut, your exile. Cause and effect on do you are unsure? You you're getting punished. That's the Navi's mantra. So he's teaching them. They didn't get it. Now, because they didn't get it, what happened? Eleven years later, in 586 before the common era, they had complete destruction. Total devastation. Because they didn't get the first wave of messages that Hashem had sent with the Navi. We didn't have to have a destroyed temple. We didn't have to have a complete, total destruction. Galut exile. Where everybody's wiped away and Judea becomes rid of all Jews. It didn't have to happen. If the Jews got the message, they saw it as an incident. The Navy kept saying, no, this is an event. Take note. Wake up. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. it. Yeah, but that would not be recorded. Because whatever is incidental is of no importance to later generations. In the same way that if a Navi is asked a question, Philosophically, he wouldn't respond prophetically, and therefore his philosophical response would not necessarily be recorded in the literature. The Navi seems to be recorded, his scribe recorded only those conversations with people, speeches, or with Hashem that was of an event-like nature. Anything else is not important. We have an even, for example, of who had one chapter. Don't spoke, God spoke to him once. There was only one discussion. That was it. No, probably he had other things to to say that were incidental and therefore of non-importance. Unless he had much more to say, we just lost it. That's possible as well. We should not have his recorded writings. His scribe didn't get up that morning. Whoever wrote down what he said, and nobody remembered it afterwards. Nobody cared about it afterwards. If he said something like that just didn't happen in a particularly interesting fashion, it wasn't it wasn't eventful. So this wasn't recorded. Therefore, um. What we have has to be viewed through this lens of prophecy. What prophecy means, and why they record this? We don't have the whole entire picture of what every Navi's life was all about. And there are multiple prophets who have very few things to say. Why? Because what they said other than that was not impactful or eventful. And they didn't speak it as a Navi. They might have spoken it as an individual. It's equivalent to a rabbi in a synagogue, maybe speaking that uh, Tuesday night and it might be so impactful that you want to record it. Any speaker, whoever make may co- be, whoever comes. Then then it might be simply, a I share? No big deal, just saying you said a hundred times, you know, no big deal. When you record, when you don't record. Right? Very simple. Um, in the same fashion, you would have, let's say, uh, the Rabbi speaks and somebody comes, and this happens to you all the time, Shabbat, you have to write this up and you have to send it out. They felt it was a very significant statement. For them, it was eventful. For me, it was just simply Pashut. It was obvious. And they felt, this has to go out, record it, can't record your back, write it up, send it out. It's very important that everybody has this message, whatever the message may have been. Same thing, so the Naveen might be saying something that he sees as obvious. Stop cheating, stop murdering, stop raping, stop committing adultery. And when the people heard it said, "Wow, well, the Navi doesn't want us to do adultery any longer. So for them it was impactful and eventful, for them it was obvious. So, therefore, we have to think more, not present, what were the criteria for that which was written down by the Navi? Certainly, in real, for example, after the destruction, where everything I said for the last 20 years was proven to be true, if you don't change your ways, you're going to be destroyed, this man was now retroactively viewed as having been a Na'vi. Who said, who was talking about? The prophet becomes the prophet, so to speak, after the events are proven. Then we knew that he was a prophet and now we should have to say, what did he say? Maybe there are hints in what he said that's going to bring us back. That's going to help us return. Which is what happened. In the very first lines of Yirmiyahu, <clears throat> you had him saying, these are the words of the prophet who started prophesying 626 before the coming and who prophesied all the way till 586 till the destruction. Why tell me that in the very opening line? Tell me that at the end, when it happens at the end. Because he wants to make the point that whatever is going to follow is proven by the events that took place. In other words, he's going to give us a chronological speech that he gave. But then why should you view that as a point? So when you get to chapter 50, let's say, Oh, destruction happened. He was right. Let me go review it again. Who's telling you from the very beginning now? I started at this point. This is what happened, and there was destruction. Therefore, pay attention to all that I'm going to say to you in the next fifty chapters. Tell me the ending at the beginning, which validates his whole prophetic career. So the answer to your question is that the navi, whether it's your ill and a plague or your miyahu, whatever it may be, people went to the navi for analysis. Of international events. Of natural events. Of supernatural events. If they saw a eclipse. The first thing you do is you go to the Navi. What does this eclipse mean? The sun is now blacked out by the moon. A total lunar eclipse. What does that mean? God's angry? You saying, no, no, it doesn't mean anything. That's a natural phenomenon he might have said to them. In the pagan world, it's due that the sun is consumed by the, by darkness, by the moon. And that's a terrible blow to their deity. So we pray and we do all kinds of rituals and rites to get the Son resurrected or reborn. Their deities die and will live again. And it stays there for 30 minutes and all of a sudden it starts moving away and they say, wow, we did it! Our prayers worked! Our rites worked! Our human sacrifice worked! And it worked. And the earthquake takes place. In 752 before the common era, it was a massive earthquake in Judea. Judea lives on the on the a fault, on the Jordan River, there's a fault. that right? one of the plates of the, the earthquakes. The All is on twelve plates, and between the plates is where there are cracks, and that's where earthquakes happen. They move every so often. They do expect a major earthquake to strike Israel, the whole region, in the next twenty-five years. Major devastating earthquake. Now, is that natural or supernatural? When it happened in 752 before the common era. It was viewed as supernatural. Amorst the prophet started prophesying two years before the earthquake. As he says, he prophesied, Schneider had two years before this great earthquake. When they wrote up his prophecy, they said, oh, this is what he said two years before the earthquake. So they probably viewed the earthquake as a divine sign they better improve their ways. It's pretty, you know, pretty much of a sign. It might be that the earthquakes were natural, but they interpreted it as supernatural. Which is fine because the end result was they changed their ways, or they should have changed their ways. What happens when this earthquake strikes Israel? And God forbid, but it will happen. When this earthquake strikes Israel, what's going to be the effect on the psychology of the people? It'll be, it will may be maybe a messianic call. It may be a temporary return, as the war of sixty-seven, which is viewed as miraculous, that we won that war. We'll see. People will go to Rabbi Kaduri, they'll go to the Rabbis, they go to the Kubalim and say, what does this mean? So he'll say, it means Utah Teshuvah. And they'll do Teshuvah temporarily. But it might be only a natural event that takes place. You have them in California all the time. Or other places. Okay, so the Navi is he to whom people came to interpret reality, events take place. Are they significant instant, events or are they incidental incidences? Not important. All of that is what the Rambam over here says, the Navi is he who communicates knowledge beyond the physical world. The philosopher, the scientist will communicate to you what the physical world is all about. The Navi goes beyond that and tells you, stat- makes statements, tells you truths about beyond the physical, the metaphysical, the supernatural. And because he's proven to be a Navi, if he speaks as a Navi, then we take his words at face value. Good. Well that prophecy. Good. Then he tells us, which we had read last week, about the goodness of God. And the goodness of God is such that he gives us a Torah. A Torah is that which gives us a pathway of life, wherein all <clears throat> things become meaningful. Let's look at the second column, about halfway down. Yeah, 23. Second column. We're about halfway down. And we're going to come to that new paragraph. And we're Proceeds the new paragraph, he's telling us that the entire Torah is all ethics in order to provide a good life, safeguard for life, and if you work in this pathway, you will be successful. And that, of course, every single mitzvah has a reason. His next point is that every mitzvah has a reason. Because this questionnaire asks the question, what's the point and purpose of all these details and mitzvot of Torah? He says, well, every mitzvah has a purpose. The purpose is to give a person the right ethics the right values, in order to live life properly. And so too the rabbis had said, why, if there are reasons for the commandments, why are they not revealed? So, his point over here is that, that obviously the rabbis all oh, believe there were reasons for the commandments, they were not revealed for a particular reason, which we discussed last week, because if the reason is revealed, then you would be more inclined to violate it. The example that we used last week was if you know that the red light is there for you to stop because you don't want to hit another car coming in the opposite direction, at perpendicular angles to you, right? You don't want to make that connection. So, therefore, what happens? So you have to stop the red light. So, if you know the reason, oh, that's the reason, I'm going to go inch out, look both ways, no cars are coming, and I'm going to go. So, you know the reason? The reason is, officer, that I pressed the red light because there was no cars coming. What's your problem? I didn't have to an accident. See, proof I'm here. You're here. Well, last happened. So, the officer may tell you, who told you the reason is, is that? doesn't say that in the law books. You assume that's the reason. Maybe there's something else why we have this red light there. Yeah, stop that there. That's a stop sign. Stop and no Right. So that's what he, right. Exactly. Right. So they'll say would have been a stop sign there. Otherwise, correct. So you don't know the right reason. And in fact, he may. The driver may say, "But you don't understand. Let's stand here for two hours. We'll see how it really works out. And no cars come by." Says, so "You know, officer, we'll change that red light to a stop sign. There's no." No cars coming. In fact, we said it for two days no cars coming. Two years no cars coming. So now two years later, the officer says to the person, so now we want to change it? So the person says, yeah, I'm changing it. So the cop says, no, no, I'm not changing it. Why not? Because there's something more profound at stake over here than simply stopping it What's more profound is I want to train you to follow all the laws of the state. Not only this law over here, but this law intentionally is Non-rational to make you agree to laws that are. So I'm going to be able to. The cop says, "Now I can unleash you. Once you trained over here, I can unleash you to other places of the state where there are, are all kinds of much more serious things done, much more difficult things done. I have to first train you to follow the, the, the laws, the rules, along the lines of a child. Let's say you want to kid how to drive. Drive. What so really, do you do? Take the first to the place to the school." Parking lot. I know people learned how to drive this parking lot? It's not, it's not dangerous. Safe. There's no cars coming back and forth. Drive around, go through, and, go, and there's some cars parked. You don't hit any of them, God willing. Do all that stuff. You have to train. And let's say we put up, say, four stop signs And four slides. Stop over here. But Dad, there's no cars over here moving. I don't have to stop over here. I don't need stop over here. Stop. Stop. He stops. Red light. We're waiting. Dad, there's no, <laughs> no cars coming back. What are you waiting for? Wait. Two minutes go by the way. Right. Okay, now you can go to the right, turn green. So doesn't see, the the reason. So, because I don't want you to drive only based on reason. I want you to drive based on instinct and on the basis of I'm going to blindly follow the laws. You don't know the reasons why the laws are there. You may assume that, oh, this is for me not to pass on the right, but I'm going to pass anyway because nobody's coming. Don't pass on the right, whether or not anybody's coming. But nobody's coming. I'm, I can see this walk over three miles. Because you gotta have to get trained. Because one day, you may in fact try passing the right, you may have to see that car, here's how you're doing this, and therefore you're increasing your odds of an accident. So don't do it. Don't do it. Just, just don't pass on the right. Whether you think the reason is right or wrong, don't do it. So in other words, we train with what you would call non-rational reasons, quote unquote, in order to train you to obey the rules when it does, when you need to obey the rules. It's safeguard. Okay. So, therefore, his point is that there are reasons for all the commandments. We're not told the reasons. We don't want you violating the reasons. We don't want you reasoning that this is the reason for this commandment, and therefore it does not apply on the situation, and therefore I'm going to do it. Right? Great example of that would be Kashrut. hundred years ago, the word was out that the reason for Kashrut was health. Simple. Cannot eat pork because of trichinosis, which is called by the trichina worm. Everybody knows that. I saw this in the 1960s by uncles of mine who were not religious and said, "Look, what are you want with root for? It's only because of health, and health does not apply any longer because we boil our uh, our pork, and therefore it's not going to stick. Therefore, it's no point." So my question: Who said the reason for this was health? Who said that's the reason? So I didn't say that's the reason for it. I was giving you a reason for it. Oh, we all know that's the reason for eating kosher. Health doesn't apply anymore. Let's eat anything we want. So the truth may be, that maybe originally it was for health reasons. They saw five people eating pork and they died, so they said don't eat pork. Who knows? Okay. But a more profound example would be, no. The reason is not really for health now. Either it may have been then, or even then it may not have been. The reason simply was discipline. To train you to be a decent person, you need discipline. Let's say in marriage, you want your child to be trained to be a good person. Good to his wife. Good to her, to her husband. So that you need discipline. What does that mean, discipline? It means you don't try to get whatever you want. You don't want to go to Brooklyn today. But you're trained. You're disciplined. So I'm going to do for my wife because it's right and mad to do for the other. She didn't feel like making dinner for you last night. She told me that. She said, ugh, let this guy eat pizza. I don't want to eat make him dinner. But she said, no, I'm focused and disciplined. I'm going to make him dinner because he's a good guy and he comes home from a hard day work and he wants to eat. So she's disciplined. I'm not, I'm so angry now because my wife left all the lights in the house on. I'm furious that all that money was wasted. You see the electric, the electric, you know, the thing that turns, it's going on, it's spinning, it's going nuts, because nobody's home, what are the lights on for? So i What does discipline mean? I'm not gonna say anything. I not say anything. I'm angry, I'm furious, I'm gonna explode. It's not constructive. At another moment when things are calmer, and you're calmer, say, honey, please, let's not leave the lights open. Why waste all that money? Why enrich cunt ed? No point to that. Just close the lights. Leave the room, close the lights. Simple. Right? So you, the discipline in not exploding and saying what you want to say at that moment is part of the roots of marriage. You want to have a good marriage? You don't always explode. Discipline means I do what I have to do, even though I may not want to do it. You don't want to drive tomorrow to Long arm to go do your business. You don't want to do it. It's a long schlep. It's two hours. I can't deal with that. You have to go. You have to go. You can be disciplined because you have to support your family and do what you have to do. So you're going to go. That's discipline. To function in life, you need discipline. So, Halakha here is teaching you through kashrut, not health or not. No, the issue of discipline. Torah wants you to be a disciplined, disciplined person. Even in the areas of sex, where there's a great deal of passion and instinct and it could be orgiastic, it could be manipulative, it could be all those things. Torah says, mikveh is discipline. In that most intimate area of life, Torah says, be disciplined. You have to withhold your instincts and your passions the two weeks out of every month, because that shows respect for the other person. And you're disciplined. And that's the root of a good marriage. Because she's not going to become simply an object of my sexual needs or desires. Discipline. Step back. Why? Because God said so. I think, yes. But there's a great psychological validity to that. It does improve the marriages. Be- Any time you need to step back. You appreciate what you have anymore. more. Okay, good. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Okay. Correct. Good. But that's what we assume the reason is, but that's not the stated reason. No stated reason. Right. Right. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. Right. Yeah. And yeah. life and it is... Works. Works. And it works. Food here. You can eat food and then you appreciate food which can Exactly. Okay. And, and it elevates that kind of... that it. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So, that's what he's saying over here. Every mitzvah has a reason, but we're not told the reasons. So, it could be anything. It could only simply be a way of life that is psychologically sound, that is spiritually meaningful, and socially productive, because we rest a seventh day every week. When we start the day, the week, we're energetic. We're going. The other guy, the Shlomaz, what does he do? He works seven days a week. He works ten hours a day. Doesn't stop for prayers. Doesn't, Doesn't stop to wash his face and washes. Doesn't do else. What happens? He's burnt out. And when he makes this deal on Sunday morning, so this is what, last six days straight, it's a bad deal. So it doesn't make a good deal, because you don't have the time to reflect, take a step back, let me think about this deal, should I do it, shouldn't I do it? So, there are all kinds of socially good reasons why I do Shabbat. Socially, psychologically, spiritually, the whole system works. I know retailers that will tell me that they used to always work on Shabbat, never kept Shabbat, they start giving shabbat. They won't give it up for the world. It's beautiful. Maxxus does it all the time. Maxxus to comes it. To right? It's, just, it's fantastic. I love it. It's great. Where was I for the last twenty years? Everyone says the same thing. I love coming to shul in the morning. Some guys I can't drive them out of bed with a yeah, crane. I have to work at six o'clock in the morning. I'm so sad. I wish I would love to come to shul. I love coming. To show. It's so meaningful to me. And I feel terrible now. Tells me every day, but I me they don't have the education. It's a shame. Se- seven years I didn't have a kitab. A couple of days a week until so I learned. I don't learn anything. I'm so sad about that. Okay, can't help the situation. Sometimes that's what it is. It is. Nevertheless, that the whole lifestyle becomes meaningful, becomes practical, becomes pragmatic. It just works as a system. Shabbat works. Yes, there'll be complaints. Oh, I can't turn on the lights. Oh, I can't watch the ball game. Oh, I can't go to the mall in the car. true. Sure, you're paying a small price. But the overall picture may be good. It provides for good lifestyle. It's true, you can't have sex every single second that you want it. But the overall pattern in life develops that she feels respected and that you're disciplined and it's better when it's, then you can engage in, in sex, and it becomes the nice, good story. All of the rationalities before it, they simply be that it provides you with a general lifestyle of meaningfulness, of social practicality, it just works. As opposed to those who don't have this, and doesn't work as, life does not work as well for them. It may work as well for so some be or another. The guy may make a good business deal after working seven days straight. He may. But as an overall community policy, as an overall national policy, as an overall disciplined system, which we transfer from generation to generation, from father to son, for the last three thousand years, it works. So far it's worked very nicely for us. So the very fact that it has meaning, yes, has reasons, what kind of reasons? They may be intrinsic reasons, he tells us, health is an intrinsic reason, Well, they may not be intrinsic maybe the reason is that it's a d- discipline. I mean, that's the reason, so that whatever I do Jewishly is part of an overall structure, overall policy that is something that provides a disciplined way of life that's meaningful, that's practical, that's socially amenable. It's all that together. That may be the reason. Not intrinsic, but rather as a general, total picture. Right? Analogy. A painter paints a picture. Does every detail that he paints have a a reason for it? Possibly. He painted the sunset to invoke, to evoke in you a certain feeling of spirituality in this beautiful sunset. Good. But part of that he puts in a distance, a little boat. Is there a meaning for the boat? Is it intrinsically meaningful? Meaning there's something there for that, for that particular reason? Or just as a part of a general picture to make this picture look really for the boat there? What do you think? Either or both. Okay, good. He might have put it there, small, to give you a sense of the grandeur and expansiveness of the nation, of the ocean. Therefore it's not there Incidentally, it's there because it plays an important role in giving you a sense of how large the ocean is, because that boat's very small, right? And he might have put a huge boat at the shore to show you the contrast. That was his intent. So therefore, it's there for a great reason. Or another artist comes along, does the same sunset, puts a the boat there, not because he wanted to show you the expansiveness of the ocean, but rather, you sorry, give me something else at. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. It's a general view. So you ask, why'd you put that boat there? This one boat there. Just, uh, the whim struck me. It's not part of my original plan. I did it after the fact, as a matter of fact. Eh, put it else to look at. So it could be something with the work, That there might be an intrinsic reason for every single thing we do, or it might be simply part of a whole system of life that as a whole is rational, reasonable, meaningful, pragmatic, amenable. It's great. Or it might be intrinsic. He just guarantees us, the Bible over here, that there are reasons for the commandments. It could be one of either of those two pathways to take. Are we following, right? Yeah, either one tells you. And therefore, uh, but he wants to prove that there are reasons, well, whatever. And he says that Moshe knew the reasons, Shema Amelich knew the reasons, except for Para Paradumah is interesting, because that is the classic case of the, quote, irrational commandments. What's Paradumah on that? What chapter 56? I don't remember what chapter. And there it says, a person who is tumified by death needs to go through a ritual of purification which involves a red heifer. No two black hairs. Pure red. Wow! What is this taking me? What does this mean? What's the reason for this? If I were to analyze it, I could break it down into certain, let's say, um, component parts. As a general question I could raise to you. Is there a need for a person who confronts death to go through a ritual? Any ritual. Does ritual help? Yeah. Anything like that. So my answer would be yeah. Anything that is so emotionally incisive, so emotionally shattering, has to be somehow relieved through the doing of any ritual. Meaning, if I, if one experiences this kind of emotional shadow experience, the fact that I go through a ritual helps me to make sense of it, helps me to put my pieces back together again. It's almost like a glue that keeps me together because I have to go through this ritual. The ritualization of death, which is so overwhelmingly difficult and shattering, is what makes death, which is a natural part of life that we all have to experience at one point or other, no matter who we are or what we are, it makes it easier to carry. Because I have a ritual. The ritual psychologizes death. An interesting sidelight: light, where Salvechik used to tell us that his grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Sarajic, was petrified of death. Not surprising. How could one not be petrified of death? It's overwhelming. It's frightening. It's scary. What does it mean? What's the other side of the bridge? The abyss? What does all that mean? They he had that dread, that feeling of anxiety and dread, come over him, he would study the laws of Avelu, of mourning. Why? Because that objectified death from the emotional subjectivity, which is racking his body, phys- causing psychological slash physical pain, he channeled that fear into objective categories out here. So it left the deepest psychological recesses and now it's on the table. Now it becomes an issue of halakha concepts like any other halakhas. Like uh, kosher, pots and pans, uh, six feet, whatever it may be. So now I can deal with this. When it's internalized, I can't deal with it. When it's externalized, I can deal with it. So the process of ritualization or externalization of the emotions that are involved help one through this experience. So Paradurma says to a person, You've confronted death. Go to this ritual. Go to the Kohen. Kohen can't do it because we don't want him involved with death. Why not? Because the Kohen, one might say, as a rational explanation of this, is Kohen has too much power as it is. As he is the conduit between you and God. He prays to God. Kohen God does all that. We want to lessen his power. We want a balance of power. So therefore, we, we don't go to him, we go to another to the other person. And guess what happens? When this other person does this issue of Prado he becomes purified. He purifies you, and purifies himself at the same time. That's showing me that nobody has absolute power of life and death over anybody. We take note that we've emerged from the Egyptian experience of death. Egypt was a cult of the dead. It served and worshiped death. The priests were involved in death. The name of the rich book is, is the book of, uh, of the dead. The book of the dead. So, to taking you out of Egypt, celebrate life. Life is beautiful. Life is Mayim Hayim. We sprinkle upon you now these living waters. Mayim Hayim is living waters. Because you just had a sense of death, now you're going to experience life. Don't allow death to shatter you. Don't allow death to Envelop you with a cloud of darkness of depression. I understand what happens to people. So he's very close to me, whose parents both passed away in the same year, six months apart, went into a, the deepest depression because of this. Terrible thing to experience. I but I understand it, and the roots and all that. I just just went into a depression, uh, or called respect expecting, whatever you want to call it. He couldn't deal with this fact of life. Do so I understand it? Yeah. You lose parents that you're very close to that were around for 50 or 60 years in your life and now all of a sudden they're not there. You feel lost. You feel aimless. Meaningless. What does it mean? He couldn't function. How do you go ahead and go and make a business deal uh, when you lost this? This is meaningless. It's meaningless. I'll share with you and tell you that when my father passed away 10, 11 years ago, a week after the Shiva I finished, I had a school meeting. Board meeting, a uh, teacher faculty meeting. I sat there saying, "What am I doing here?" This, and, and and people to me at that point were just almost like shadow-like figures. They were not real, it, is, and they were talking, but it was irrelevant. It wasn't meaningful because it was it was silly. Going from that experience to this experience of a faculty meeting about you know kids who were absent twice a week, I couldn't deal with it, and had to make a conscious effort. Of rooting myself back in reality, it was a conscious effort. Admittedly, this happened to everybody. That everybody may react the same way that I did. You know, strike because I deal with this all the time. Got to be the person that's the away. I have to deal with it. But when it struck home, it was such a sh- a strike that, and it wasn't sudden. My father was ill a couple of years. It was appropriate. It was pop- proper. It wasn't young. He was seventy years old. I wish he were older, but it was not. I should have been able to deal with it much more easily. I didn't. I didn't. It was hard. It's hard for you, too. I know, it's okay. Hey, come on, sit up. Sit up. Like that. Sit up. Sit up. Sit down, sit down It's okay. Not easy, huh? We didn't want to do yet. It was a tough time for you. And that's why this is important. It's important to work through this. It's very important to work through this. And it was only by having had the halachat helped me work through it, I was able to work through it. You have very deep feelings that are still there. And it's interesting how the comfort I had gotten was with San Kaddish. saying Kaddish and I had seen other people saying it with me. And I wasn't, you know, I thought I was a kid. It was 10, 11 years ago. But it was other people who were older than me and younger than me, saying Kaddish, that made me feel that this made sense in a global sense. I'm not alone. I'm not. People are there for me. It really helped me work through my feelings. I know, ironically, when I, my father first got sick with cancer, I couldn't even say the word. For months, for years, I couldn't use that word. It was horrible. It was terrible. It's a really, it's a devastating blow. And yet, I had to work through my feelings. For my kids' sake. I was, I stopped eating. And I, I'm not going to call it a bizarre reaction. I stopped eating. I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything. And had to be strong enough to put myself back in. For that, I used my kids almost as an excuse. So I'm gonna do this. Why? My kid said. So my point over here is that this is such an overwhelming experience that we all go through at one point or other. Paraduma helps one work through those emotions. You go through this ritual, and at the end of the experience, you feel cleansed. You feel purified. I could deal with this now because I went through this ritual experience. But it's hard. Not everybody can. So that might be the reason for this. The reason for Adumah is to help a person go through the most overwhelming and difficult experience in life. So we have this. So it does over here that also Moshe Rabbeinu said there are reasons for all the commandments. And we prove the point by saying that eventually Torah is going to be viewed by the whole world as a source of wisdom. And they're going to all say about us, the non world, is that this is a... Fantastic religion. <coughs> Excuse me. This is going to be a source of uh <coughs> of insight. Wow. They're gonna end up saying, Wow, look what you people have done. Look what you've created. You've lasted for three thousand years. And when I study this, I've always think of the number of non Jews who look at Jews and say, Wow, about our religion. All of it, parazuma, as a response to experiencing death kashrut health not health discipline McVeh helping me respect and taking not taking for granted the physical part of a relationship fantastic they can end up all saying this is great it works and then I think of the Mark Twain article that I spoke about before one other occasion Mark Twain 1898 Harlem Magazine, extraordinary people of the Jews I don't know if you know the article great article to read fantastic article to read 1960 who writes the article? His name is um The Source by James Mitchner. The Jews, what's the secret of the Jews? So he writes 942 pages and then this is, what's the secret of the Jewish continuity? Go through the whole tradition. What's the secret? How do we do it? In the seventies, Ernest Van writes a book called The Jewish Mystique. How do the Jews do it? What are they all about? It's ironic because often enough we as Jews don't appreciate what we really are, what we really become, what we've done. 1970s is a Jewish mystique by Erich Van non-Jewish social anthropologist. Life right with the Jews, I, he looks, I don't get it, what are they all about, in the 80s. Paul Johnson, world-renowned historian, right for called history of the Jews. His first letter says, why am I writing with the Jews? I'm a good Christian. I never liked the Jews. I, don't, I have nothing to do with the Jews, as an English historian. And he says, but it dawned upon me that that which my religion taught me about the Jews was inaccurate. If they are the source of my religion, I did research on it, and writes a 400 page book on the Jews. Interesting. 1990. uh, Thomas Cahill, a bunch of The Gift of the Jews. How a small nomadic tribe changed the way we all think and feel. Came out five, six years ago. The non-Jewish world looks at the Jews and says, Wow! It's amazing! Every decade or so, somebody comes over and says, Wow! about the Jews. Amazing! That's what it means, that eventually the non-Jewish world is going to look at the Jews that you are an extraordinary people. In Mark Twain's closing words, he says, we're a dim puff of stardust in the Milky Way galaxy. We represent less than one half percent of the world's population. 14 million out of 6 billion now. Then it was 5 billion, now it's 6 billion. And despite all of that, the Jews always heard of the others, the Greeks, the Romans, Babylonians, all have come amid tremendous amounts of splendor, proper ceremony, that they went the way of the world. They came down. There's nobody left. The Jew remained. He survived history with one hand tied behind his back. What's the secret of the Jew? He's immortal. He doesn't get it. Mark Twain. What did he see about Jews? What did he know about Jews like statement. And yet, he does. That's the pasuk. That eventually this whole system that we have over here is put together that the non-Jewish world will say we're a wise people. So, they're going to say we're wise people. What does that mean? It means that there are reasons for the commandments. Because if they were irrational and made no sense whatsoever, then what would they, what wisdom would they see? Now again, they may see intrinsic reasons that are Part and parcel of the mitzvah scenario. There's a reason why that little boat was taken over there to give you the sense of distance, the spaciness of the ocean. Or they may end up saying, well, you know, the whole system is great. You do not understand the reasons. Maybe the reason is only to have a mitzvah. Either psychologically to help me, or <clears throat> the same way to train me. There's no intrinsic reason why I'm stopping at this stop sign. There's no cars coming, I'm stopping. Red light. No cars coming, I'm stopping but it's training me as part of a discipline to deal with life. That might be the reason. And oh, and that's it. Either way, the Rambam's view over here is that the sports are not simply a result of divine will, but rather of divine wisdom. They all make sense. Good. Here's another problem. this students of the Rambam. Here's down that you should, uh, find you. No, this is where I read. which is interesting. Because, of course, as you know, the Rambam spends twenty-five to thirty chapters of Part Three of the Guide to attempt to find the reason for the commandments. He's not happy, not being intellectually engaged and finding the divine wisdom behind commandments. He wants you to search for the reasons, not because of certainly going to find at the end of the day a answer to the question. You may not find an answer to the question. But the process, the search itself is meaningful. I may get the right answer, I may get the wrong answer. But I'm spending my life in an intellectually engaging fashion that <coughs> is meaningful and therefore the process itself is what you want to do. Engage your mind. Use your mind. This is what it's all about. Right? So even though he does spend a 30, 30, chap- 30 chapters doing this, Say <coughs> for the reasons, and tells you the maybe right, maybe wrong, but he, the student of the Rabbah, does not tell us to do that. So you can say the yeah, other reasons. So it's almost the same thing. The same. It's okay. not good enough. Okay. No, <coughs> saying, it's, it's, it's only, you can say there's, say that, there's reasons behind the commandment, but if you don't try to find out the reasons, are yeah. other reasons. Then it's almost the same thing. as saying It's the will of God doing it. Exactly. It's the same. Right. Rama would not be happy with those people who simply accept. To him, intellectual engagement is the essence of what religious life is all about. It's intellectual, which leads to spiritual. If you want to connect with God, you have to use your mind. Study science, study chemistry, biology, physics. Engage your mind and come to know your Creator. The wants you to. Simply go through the material and accept, oh, they are fine, no problem. He'd be very unhappy with that personality. He wants you to be engaged. To the point of feeling a certain tension in it. So, doing the commandments, going through the motions, is not what it's all about for the Rambach. He wants you to be engaged emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, intellectually. That's how you come to know God and enter the God's palace. Simply to, to let it happen. To do it, it's not. I, have, I don't know why I'm just doing it. There's a bumper sticker that goes something like this. God said it, I believe the case closed. That's not in my mind, i be in petition. God said it. Acceptable. I believe it. Acceptable. But why did God say it? It's what he wants you to find out. <clears throat> so he spends one third of Moreng Nebuchim's to the Perplexed trying to engage the mind to understand Divine Wisdom. And understanding Divine Wisdom, I've come closer to God. So that's his intent. That's his purpose. Well, there's has mentioned over here, that's what Raman would want. Good point. He's next perplexed by something, and least I'm not sure if the Raman would say this. Top quote. Fathers and sons. Which means that if something good happens to a child, grandson, great-grandson, we say because the father was a great man. It's called That makes sense. Because my great-grandfather was a great person. Why should I win the lottery? No connecting link. I'm a great person. Let me win the lottery. Let I mean, I him win the lottery if he's a great person. What is this notion of zechut avor? Father's great, grandson gets to the reward. does that do anything. Furthermore, umatu eiret lenev sha'at ikyum And what good is it, he says, to the soul of the father if the son does a great meritorious deed? Let's say I just charity in, in, uh, in memory of somebody. So, why should that soul get that a Zachut? He didn't do it. He thinks not here. I did it. So, give me the Zachut. Why is he getting the Zachut? He's a common first idea. Sorry? Because of him, he passed down his. Uh... He took it the first problem, second problem. Second problem. Second problem. Okay. because he passed down with... He built to his son. Okay. Passed it down to. Yes. Okay, so really he, in effect, is the cause of my good deed. Okay, how far do you want to go back to that? 1,000 years? 2,000 years? So every deed that I do goes back and affects the souls of these 2,000 people. How my teachers? And their teachers? Who taught them? Because if they didn't teach them, then they would not have taught me. So now we've expanded this so whole thing. How about the person that drew water from a well, to give my teacher's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather a cup of water, which gave him life, which made, made them to continue teaching. So, it all ends up coming, that everything that you or I, anybody else does, affects millions of people all going back. Alright, maybe that's the system. The is not the system. Ram says, <laughs> When the father was alive, he did his thing in a physical sense. So that was, it's over now, physically it's over. Why this works is a secret teaching. Why, in fact, the Father's great deed could give me great merit. I went a the lottery because he did a mitzvah 2,000 years ago. If I did it, good. I didn't do it. He did it. I got a merit. Why? Secret teaching. Why this is a secret teaching? We We can't explain this. Or, the fact that The father, in fact, was a great man. Therefore, I'm a great man, so therefore what I do is a reflection of what he did, right? Okay, that's your position. And he says that. He says that there will always be imprints of the fathers on the sons. But how far am I going to take that? Father's a great man, good. But everything that I do is because of him? Say yeah. My grandfather did because of him and teachers and all that? Is that what we're going to say? Come, It's a hard story. Yet we assert as true, the notion that Zikhutavort, I will merit a great reward for what my father did, even though I didn't do it, he did it, I will merit that, and that I can, in turn, do something good for my father or grandfather, great grandfather, because of my mitzvot, My mitzvot impact upon men. And maybe that's really the case. The Ram says, the Ram says, his student says, is this a Rambam or a student? Big question. We need to come to grips with this, and I don't recall or pen any statement in the Rambam to this effect. We're going to look at a few other cases down the road and see the Rambam really say this, or is the student imposing his views on the Rambam. Important question. Important, important question. Also, we'll let's we'll go a bit further. That's the issue. Next issue comes out is very significant. The student of the Ram says to this person, and you ask me about the nations of the world. Are they good or not good in the eyes of God? question that in the heart of us we all have. What does Hashem, what does God think of that Christian, Italian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu? When this question comes, when was this question most impacted me? About 20 years ago Emily and I ran a seminar in South Africa. Right, it was twenty thousand in South Africa, we ran a seminar. Great story. Great time, kids, very nice. We had one day off in about um, the 8 weeks that we were there. And that one day we went to Zulu Lake. Yeah, we worked 8 weeks straight. Day and night, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Actually, it was a seminar, so a good day. Huh? Good. Not too much. Couple hours a night, we got trained. Yeah, the kids we were working to program, to program, program, program. Good, fine, we loved it. Great story. Very exciting. One day off, we went up to, went to Zululand. There's a place called Zululand. <coughs> you remember that? Anyway? Sorry? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Amazing. You see these black kids went to a Zulu school. Very primitive. They were back there in recess and they were dancing. So we started dancing to their dances because we wanted to be friendly with them. We figured you know, what do all about. And then we taught them a, a Jewish dance, like a horror. We taught them a Jewish dance. They put it up like this. They know how to dance. Fantastically well. And then, what was my thought? We came back, here I am teaching Torah to all these Jewish kids. What role do these black kids, pagans, their deity was Pukulush? Pukulush is the name of their deity that they're very afraid of. Tukulish is very short. And that's why they put their beds on bricks. Each bed in Zululand is on two or three bricks. Because then he can't reach you and grab you at night. Right? So therefore, they're safe. They have. Pictures of an anti-Tokoloshe huh, on their house, their huts, their fast huts. It's amazing to see all this. So here I am, thrust into the middle of pagan black Africa. I'm just going on one hand, you know, to, this, to the white Jewish kids of South Africa, and I'm trying to figure out over here what role do these blacks play in God's world? I'm <clears throat> I don't get it. I can understand. Some of the blacks of South Africa were Christianized. So maybe so God's purpose was Christianity is going to go and Christianize them. That's better than being a pagan. Maybe that's what the role they play But what about these <coughs> little black kids, what about these old, you know, we we in a village, a primitive village of 50 or 20 thatch huts, a school of thatch huts, p- women making pottery, ceramics, that's how they make their living, all that kind of stuff, and these rugs, whatever they were. <clears throat> you know what mean? What is the role that these blacks play in world civilization. Consider that. And I spoke to this, my other, the other advisor, teacher, ah, yeah, we're talking about, it was a silly question. No, I don't get it. What is Hashem, what does that do there? Are these ways of the Christianity get them to convert them? Jews are not doing it. Is that, is that what, that we're here for? That what the Christians are there for? What is, what's the role of the non-Jew in the world? That's it. You ask that question. You should be aware that God wants the heart. God wants the heart. And ask the intention of the heart is the essence of all things, a pure heart, God wants. So therefore, if you're a non-Jew, <clears throat> and you, in fact, you're a non-Jew, and you, in fact, have a pure heart, fine. So God wants a pure heart. Amazing Satan. Only God cares about the quality of the heart you have. Therefore, the rabbis have said, he says, that the righteous Gentiles of the world have a portion in the world to come. Problem with that? No problem with that. The Gentiles of the world to come have a portion in the world to come. That's the standard teaching. To heart, to it will come fine. However, the Roman does add something else, which is a little bit shocking over here. The fifth. This seems to be pure my mind, a dean, not a student. If <clears> they <throat> grasp what's appropriate to grasp from knowledge of God. You have to have knowledge of God in order to achieve what well to come for the Rama. You can't just get there. It's not a free a entrance free way. Right? Unless you have the right scores, the right knowledge, the right understanding. you don't have that, you can't make it. Now, in of course... ...the I mean, I mean, problem for it? yeah. like intellectual. intellectual connection with God. Right. You if you don't have that connection, then how are you going to connect? Right. Yeah. Exactly. But it's very hard, because how many people really have true knowledge of God? Many people have false knowledge of God. They think of God as some old man sitting in the sky someplace. That false knowledge of God it doesn't work. But you're right. There are those who will say that the Rambam road is 13 principles of faith. Because it gives the average person an entree into the world to come. Because that's, if you have these 13 principles, you're halfway there. You're halfway there. Right? Good. Okay. I'm not convinced that that's the reason the Ramah World 13 principles, to get you into the world to come. But, the Ramah's intellectualism is such a powerful motif in his writing. Knowledge, wisdom, connection to God, it's all about knowledge, wisdom, understanding, depth. But I'm concerned because who really achieves that knowledge of God to achieve that connection with God? I like having a pure heart. I have a pure heart, I get to Ramah, I like that. And that really is the g out. Here, the Rambam. Me, the Rambam adds on in with Seigel, if you grasp what the proper to grasp in the mouths of God, because that's hard. and you establish in your soul good qualities, good characteristics. You're humble, <coughs> generous. All you know those characteristics you have, good. But you still need knowledge of God, to get to the world to come. Jew, non-Jew, same thing. So that's interesting. The aim of the of faith is no doubt to anybody that had, if he implanted in his soul, in his psychology, having good morals, good characteristics, and he has the appropriate wisdom and knowledge in knowing about God, certainly, whereby, he will be part of the world to come. He'll have it all. He has to have both, from Ronald's point of view. Not always, not always easy to achieve both. Doesn't say it. Either one has to achieve it. Can a non-Jew achieve knowledge of God? Yeah, Aristotle, I think, Ramu say, achieved in knowledge of God, and he's a pagan, but he achieved. an unusual person, right? And the Muslims, for sure, would I say, achieve knowledge of God. Not to any degree, not the highest degree, but they have Allahu Allah, God is one. They have an absolute sense of the unity of God, the oneness of God. So that's what the Bible wants you to have. It doesn't say it's easy or hard, it says God wants the purity of your heart, but you need also that knowledge of God in order to get the world to come, to achieve ultimate spiritual redemption. We have trouble with this teaching, what can I tell you? I'm not happy because most of my friends don't have pure knowledge of God. wise knowledge of God? Who knows? True knowledge of God. Not easy. That's his point. And he may close up with saying, and the rabbis have said, even if you're a non-Jew, and you study Torah of Moshe, you're like Kohen Gadot, highest level. Go to the Holy of Holy, Yom say name of God, everything. If you are somebody who studies Torah, non-Jew, don't okay, Jew, non-Jew, study Torah, you got name. That's what he's saying over here. That is my again. that's the rambis. So he wants you to study is everything. Study, study, study. You study, you become no non-Jew, Kohen Gadot, high priest. We'll stop over here, see you next week, there's a lot of other interesting ideas too, and thank you.